0: We're going to wrap it up in the near future. I think we've given you the skills and the tools that you can build upon from here on out. There are a couple more things I want to cover before we go on to our next doctrine study. You want me to tell you what the doctrine study is going to be? Yeah, it's the doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell. Very few tackle that one, and that's what we're going to study after we get done with this particular study. I got an interesting response from someone who's following this study, and they're from another state, and they are following the course that we're teaching here on Wednesday night, and this particular individual said, I just didn't realize how little I know about things. That's, in essence, what he was saying. And I said, one of the problems, I wrote him back and I said, well, first of all, by your commitment to wanting to learn these things, you obviously are well-advanced above most people because most people wouldn't even concern themselves with something like this. And I said, and secondly, I think what is important is it's this kind of work is not being done in pulpits. I think what has happened in many cases is that there's a lot of instruction based on people saying, well, I'm going to share what's on my heart in pulpits. And that's not the same as saying, I'm going to teach what's in the text. And what Paul has called a minister to do is study to rightly divide the scriptures, to communicate the scriptures. That's his responsibility. And probably why a study like this is so foreign to people is because it's just not done. It's just not being done. And hopefully, in the course of this study, you have gained some skills and insight into being able to spot something. In fact... If you go over to Romans chapter 11, if you would for a second, I want to show you something that we're going to see Sunday morning that you might find interesting to think about. In Romans chapter 11, and I'll just show you verse 36, because I want to show you three different prepositions, and I'll tell you what they are. If you want to take that little preposition circle chart that we gave you a few weeks ago, you can actually analyze this before we expound it on Sunday. But you'll notice in verse 36 how so Paul wraps this up. For from him, that's the preposition ek. And you'll see that in your diagram, ek, from him, out of him. That's that one. And through him, that's the preposition dia, which is the line that goes through that circle. And to him, which is the preposition ace e-i-s, ice. Which is going into there. To him be glory forever. So, in that one verse, you have three of those prepositions that are used that are on your little chart that you have there. And you can just simmer on that in your brain as you're looking at that verse. And we'll try to make sense of it Sunday morning when we go through that very text of Scripture. Now, we're talking about verbs, and before we begin our study tonight proper, let's pray. Father, thank you for your people who've come out tonight. We pray that you would bless our time, make it profitable. We pray this would please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, verbs are just the heart of the Bible. It's the heart of the action in the Bible. And we said that every verb has a voice, an active voice, a passive voice, a middle voice. Every verb has a person uh, first person, second person, third person, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Every verb has a number, it's either singular or plural. It's either I or you or we or they, it's singular or plural. Every verb has a mood, indicative, imperative, subjunctive or optative, and every verb has a tense, present tense, future tense, imperfect tense, aorist tense, perfect or pluperfect tense. Now if you go over to the next to the last page you got tonight, which will be page 89, page 89. What we've done here, if you go just down past the first clause, we'll come back to this later, but here's the way you chart New Testament verbs in the Greek language. This is the tense chart. So if you look at the present tense there, and here's a little diagram we've given you. Present tense would be continuous action in present time. So you have those two brackets, but that line there is just your present tense time where that's going on. And then the aorist tense would be a point of time. You're looking a point of time usually in past action. So there's your dot. You're looking back to a point of time in the past. Then you have the perfect tense, which is a point of time action. We'll talk about that tonight, which has present tense and future tense ramifications. So you get the dot, where's the point of time, and then from that point on into the present and the future, you have your linear line. And then you have the imperfect tense, which is continuous action in the past time. And I'm just giving you the diagram now. We're going to go back and talk about this. You have the pluperfect tense, which is completed action and results of action at some point in the past time. So if you look at that diagram, you're looking back to the past there. That's what that little symbol means. You're looking back to past time. You're looking to a point of time where the action was completed there. And then you have a future tense that looks forward to future time. So there's a little diagram that we've put together for you that perhaps will help you when we talk about these things. Now we talked about. The different voice of verbs. And the voice of a verb determines the subject as it relates to the action. And the active voice means the subject performs the action. God sent his son. God sent his son. God performs the action of sending his son. I throw the ball. I perform the action of throwing the ball. I read my Bible. I perform the action of reading the Bible. You read your Bible. You perform the action of reading the Bible. That's the active voice. The passive voice is the subject receives the action, so the subject is acted upon. We maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law, justified as passive. We didn't do the action, we were the recipients of the action of justification. The moment we believed in the Lord, God made this judicial decree concerning us that we were the recipients of his justification status. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We were the recipients of the action. We didn't even know this action was happening. I mean, I sure didn't, neither did you. The moment you believed in the Lord, you didn't realize that that spirit of God just put you into Jesus Christ. We weren't aware of it. We were the recipients of the action, which is what the passive voice does. Then you have this middle voice thing, and that's the middle voice in which the subject performs the action And also receives the action. So like when you read in Matthew 27 that Judas went out and hanged himself. I mean, he performed the action of hanging himself, and he was the recipient of the action. He hung himself. And in Romans 9.22, God has prepared for destruction vessels of wrath. God has done the action, and we have participated in the action, and we receive the action. Also, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 6, if you would, for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, I'll have you look up a couple of them here in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, we read, actually then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, the verb be wrong is in the middle voice verb, so why not take the wrong yourself? That's the way you'd understand that. Why not in and of yourself take the wrong? So you're wronged, you receive the action, why not take the wrong in the results of the action? An interesting one in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8 is this gift of tongues. If there is tongues, they will cease. It's a middle verb, which would indicate that God has built a tongue shut-down valve in and of themselves in that gift. In other words, that gift was going to stop, and He had built a shut-off valve in and of Himself with the gift of tongues, which was an ability to speak a language that you had not previously learned or studied. So there is that one. Now I'll go over to Second Timothy two one. I want to show you one more in Second Timothy two one. Middle voice verb, you perform the action, you receive the action. And Paul challenges Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now the verb be strong is a middle voice verb, which means, Timothy, you have a responsibility in and of yourself to be involved in that action, to be strong in grace, strong in defending the grace of God. So he is really challenging Timothy to a responsibility to perform the action and be the recipient of the action as well. Now, the categories of persons of a verb is you have a first person of a verb, which is I and we, and one of the great first person texts of scriptures in Romans 7, so just go back to Romans chapter 7 if you would, and here you can see where Paul is using himself in first person language to describe his spiritual condition And in Romans 7, verse 14, for we know, now there's a we, so there's a first-person plural. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin for what I am doing. Notice the pronoun I's. I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Now, this particular text is just filled with first-person verbs. I am doing, I am doing this, I'm not doing this. I mean, it's just filled with all of these first-person verbs. So you have first-person verb in which the subject is involved in the action. Then you have a second-person verb in which it's the you viewpoint. If you go to Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law. You are not under law. You are under grace. So there's the second-person that's involved in the category of the verb. And then you have third person, he, she, it, they. If you notice in Romans 6 and verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. There's your third person. So every verb has a voice. It's either active, passive, or middle. Every verb has a person. It's either first person, second person, or third person and the verb also has a number. It's either singular or plural. Every verb has a number, either singular or plural, and a singular verb is a verb in which one person or one object performs the action. That's a singular verb, and usually if you have English, that's a singular verb. It will end in an S or an ES word. I've given you a chart here of singular and plural verbs here, and you can see the main ones that are used in English. A lot of them are showing up in the Bible, so you can see that. And a plural verb is a verb in which you have more than one person involved in performing the action or the object of the action. In English, a plural verb does not end with an S or an ES. Let me give you an example. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and this is a plural verb here in John 10 and verse 27. We read, my sheep hear my voice, not hears my voice, my sheep hear my voice. This is a plural, my sheep, and I know them and they follow me. So you have a plural verb here, my sheep hear my voice, not hears my voice. And that is what a plural verb basically does. So you have with the verb, you have a person, you have a number, it's either singular or plural, it's either first person, second person, third person, or it has a voice, it's either active voice, passive voice, or middle voice. And then you've got different moods of the verb on page 83. Now every verb has a specific mood in which... The writer is expressing his attitude of mind or emotion involved in what he's writing. And God is obviously in this because he's inspired this. And so he obviously is in the various moods of the verbs that are used. And the first one is the indicative mood. And that presents something that is reality. It's factual. When a writer wanted to state a fact, and he wanted it just to be a stated fact, he would use the indicative mood And if he wanted us to know a fact, he would use an indicative question. So the indicative mood is the mood that really is a mood of reality and fact. For example, in John 3.36, although I didn't list that one particular, but in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. Indicative mood, statement of fact. It's a fact. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. In the beginning was the Word, indicative mood. We're going to talk about that one a little later But it's a statement of fact. Apart from the law, righteousness of God has been manifested. Indicative mood, statement of fact. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Indicative mood, statement of fact. It's a fact. So that becomes very, very important. The indicative mood is a critical mood of the New Testament. Then you have the subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood presents something as being probable, but it's not for sure but probably it's going to happen. The writer is not completely sure whether or not someone would actually do it, but they lean toward the probability they will do it. For example, in Hebrews 4.15, let us hold fast our confession. The writer of Hebrews said, most believers are going to do that. Most believers are going to hold fast their confession. But there's always the possibility that they wouldn't do it. So there's a mood of probability. The subjunctive is the mood that actually is the mood that actually says it's probable. First John four: seven, let us love one another. Subjunctive mood. That probably is going to happen. It doesn't always happen, but it probably will happen. So that's what the subjunctive mood does. Now, the optative mood presents something as possible. And it may not happen. The writer wants it to happen and wishes it'll happen, but it's a little bit removed from probability to perhaps less probability. It's a wish. if is a mood where somebody wishes something, and when you wish something, you are basically taking it out of the realm of what is reality that you can say dogmatically. In Romans 6.2, let's go look at that one because we're pretty familiar with this one. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 2, Paul uses one of these rare optative mood verbs in Romans 6 two when he says, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. May you never think like that. May you never think that you should just go off and continue in sin so that God's grace can abound. Now by using the optative mood, he's saying, but there is the possibility somebody may do that. May you never think like that. That's my wish. That's the heart of God on this. May you never think that we should continue in sin that grace may abound, but we can't with dogmatic certainty say that every single believer is going to actually take that viewpoint and that lifestyle. And the optative mood is why he's using that there. If you go over to Romans 9.14, Romans 9.14 what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. May you never think that way. May you never say that way. But there are people that will think that way. There are people that will think that God isn't fair and God isn't just. So by using the optative mood, they're basically allowing for the possibility that somebody is just going to be whacked in the way that they think about the Lord and about the things of God. Now, the fourth verb is the imperative mood, which presents a command for something that's possible. And the writer commands something that can be done. Jesus went to people and said, follow me. It's a command. Follow me. Really, when you give a command to somebody, you're the farthest removed from reality that you can be because you can't guarantee the person's going to obey the command. So, The imperative mood is a command that's given to us by the Lord. Jesus said, follow me. James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That's a command. Ask God. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Ask God to give you wisdom. Now, you can command that for people to do that, but you can't determine whether or not they're going to do that. I mean, all you can do is give them the command, which is what James is doing. Mark five thirty-six. Jesus speaking to a synagogue official, do not be afraid, only believe. Don't be afraid. Well, now Jesus can command the guy not to be afraid. He can command every one of us not to be afraid. But whether that will become reality will be determined by a lot of other factors. So the imperative mood is a mood that does give commands to people. It doesn't necessarily tell us whether or not someone is going to follow through with the command. Let me show you a series of them in 1 Timothy 6. If you go over there to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think this is a series of imperatives here. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, you have about four different imperative commands here that Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, those are all commands that the apostle Paul is giving to Timothy, you flee. You flee godless things. You pursue. You pursue righteousness. You take hold of these qualities of life, and you fight a good fight of faith. I mean, those are commands. Those are imperatives that Paul's giving to Timothy. Now, can Paul make Timothy obey those? No. He can command him to do it. God can command us to do it, I guess God would be the only one who could actually make us do it, actually, but typically when he gives imperatives, he wants his people to take them seriously. Now that brings us to the next discussion, and that is what is the verb tense? The tense of the verb is the aspect of the verb that tells us when the action of the sentence took place or takes place, and it also tells us the kind of action that takes place. That's what the verb tense is. It tells us when the action occurred, and it tells us the kind of action that's taking place. Every verb has a tense. The tense of the verb reveals two things. The tense of the verb has to do with the time of the action, and the tense of the verb has to do with the type of the action, the type of the action. So you have the time of the action and the type of the action in a verb tense. If a writer or speaker said, I threw the ball. I threw the ball. It wouldn't be too difficult for us to realize, well, at some time in the past, he threw the ball. We could obviously figure that out just by that statement. I threw the ball. At some time in the past, the guy threw the ball. He isn't presently throwing the ball now So he obviously threw the ball sometime in the past before he was speaking or writing that. So we could conclude from the statement that at some point in past time, the writer or the speaker was informing us, I threw the ball. But in that statement, did he mean he threw the ball one time? Did he mean he threw the ball many times? Did he mean he threw the ball over and over again? Verb tense can tell us that. And that's critical. And I'm convinced that's why the Lord had the word of God written in this language so that we could be very precise in understanding things just like that, not necessarily about throwing a ball. But in John, Jesus taught that if one would believe in him, they'd have everlasting life. And he uses different metaphors to express it. I'd like you to go to John 4, if you would. John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, in verse... 13, we read, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now flip over to John 6 and look at verse 51. In John chapter 6 and verse 51, we read, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So now in John four thirteen to 14, Jesus is speaking to a woman in Samaria, and he uses the illustration of drinking water metaphorically in regard to believing on him for salvation that's what he's using that metaphor to communicate. He says to her, whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst again. That's what he tells her. The water will give you eternal life. You'll never thirst for eternal life if you drink of this water. Then you go to John 6 51 and Jesus uses the metaphor of him being the living bread. And he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he would live forever. Now the question to ask the verbs, drink and eat, is how many times do you have to do that? How many times do you have to drink of the water, and how many times do you have to eat of the bread to have eternal life? I mean, how many times do you have to do that multiple times? He's using this in a context of saying that I can give salvation and will give salvation, to one who drinks this living water and eats this living bread. So how many times do you have to do that? Well, the verb tense will tell us. The verb tense will tell us just exactly how many times you have to do it. The answer is once, one time. And the choice of the verb that is given by the Lord is critical to determining how many times you have to eat the bread and how many times you have to drink of that living water. One time, one time by faith in Jesus Christ, and you have everlasting life. See, the verb tense is critical, and that's why it's important to doctrine, it's important to theology, and these two verses clearly teach eternal security. In other words, if you believe in the Lord, and you have partaken of him by faith one time, you have everlasting life. You never have to eat again. You never have to drink again because you've already received what it would be to have everlasting life. Now to action, when it comes to action related to time, the action can take place in past time, present time, or future time. As to the action related to type, the kind of action can be continuous action. It can be completed action, pointed action, or ongoing occurring action. And that's the way the action can actually be. And there are six different tenses, and our time is just about gone tonight. Yeah, so you're not going to actually probably be able to do this little quiz I gave you until after next week, because we want to cover those things before you have at that little quiz that you have there. So I think we'll just pause here tonight. We've gone through a lot of different things. Do you have any questions or anything about this? Well, I want to thank you for coming. We've got a tremendous day of worship planned on Sunday. We're going to be in one of the most powerful texts in the book of Romans. We have Communion Sunday this Sunday, and we also have just a tremendous passage of Scripture in the book of Micah on Sunday night, so it'll be a great day of worship. Thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.